Welcome to Investing for Ocean Impact, a podcast providing the business case for conserving our ocean. I'm Dorothy Hale. In this first episode, we're talking about the current state of ocean conservation and the gap between how much money we have and how much we need. The ocean today face extraordinary threats, problems caused by us humans, but that also we can fix. But the funding to conserve and restore these environments is currently extremely limited, and the projects that exist are often surviving from grant to grant. We need to make a fundamental shift in how we think about financing ocean conservation. The private sector must also be involved. I want to show you how we at the IUCN Blue Natural Capital Financing Facility, including the work with many partners, are leading the way. And with help from some experts, we'll discuss how we can leverage private money without letting the public sector and philanthropists off the hook. But before getting into the solutions, we need to understand how bad things are for the ocean and for the planet. And according to Ambassador Peter Thompson, the UN Secretary General's Special Envoy for the Ocean, we are in a red alert for humanity. There can be no healthy planet without a healthy ocean, and the ocean's health is measurably in decline. You know, you can look at something like uh, fisheries, where we're overfishing by over 30% of global fish stocks. Pollution of the ocean, where we're looking at there being you know, more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050. Deoxygenation, you know, with less oxygen, making life in the water much more difficult. Acidification of the ocean, it's acidifying at a faster rate than any time in the planet's history or warming, and the warming of the atmosphere and the warming of the ocean is having some very deleterious effects. You know, as those ice sheets in Greenland melt, they're pouring into the one bathtub that we've got, the one ocean, and they're causing sea levels to rise in, uh, you know, countries like Tuvalu, next to my home in Fiji, or get down to Miami and see what's happening to southern Florida. You know, the sea level rises are on, and they, they, they all come uh, and I should also mention ecosystem changes because that's the other big effect of ocean warming. It's all, in my view, very fixable. All we've got to do is apply a bit of human sanity to multilateral relations and work out what is uh, in the common good. And when we talk about financing some of these solutions and particularly actually to finance the active conservation and restoration of coastal and marine ecosystem. What role should the private sector play in this? Private sector, public sector, both uh, have a role to play, and we're not going to get there without both playing that role. You know, I've been involved in uh, development work since the 1970s in rural Fiji, and through until when I was president of UNDP board, uh, I always heard the same refrain. Peter, you've... Uh, We've got all the money you need, you know, but uh, you haven't got the projects. Write up the projects and we'll give you the money. I've heard that refrain all my life and it's maddening because obviously there are hundreds of thousands of projects out there that could be funded. But, you know, we just don't have the bureaucrats down there in the villages and along the coastal communities to write up all this sophisticated stuff that those with money want us to present them. So, you know, what I would say to the moneyed world is if you're so anxious to 
uh, help, uh, you know, which is really helping yourself in the long run. Maybe you should be funding project writers, an army of them, to go out there into the world and write up these projects. And if you say there are no projects, in 24 hours, I could give you a list of 10,000 towns in the Southwest Pacific and Southeast Asia that require sewage treatment plants. Uh, I would also say be very aware that when you're sitting at the bottom of the pile in the developing world and you're looking at all that money up there and all the people talking about it, we just see the money going round and round in circles in boardrooms and reports endlessly with none of it coming down to actually, you know, building the practical stuff like seawalls or sewage schemes or, or aquaculture ponds or whatever. So my message really to both the private sector and the public sector was, would be, yeah, yeah, really glad that you're shifting your perspective in the direction of the sustainable blue economy. But please be oriented towards making a difference on the ground and not a difference in your boardrooms. And what would you say to some of the startups, as you say, that are out there and that really try to integrate nature-based solutions in their business model? What are their next steps? How should they get their word out? Well, that's the problem, you know. It's just so difficult when you're down at that level. But, you know, all around the world, you can see uh, women's groups getting into things like seaweed production. And we're going to take that to scale. So it's doable, what, I, what we're talking about here. You know, I haven't even got into electrification of uh, shipping. But that, again, is a very doable thing, but requires big money. And when I think about the sustainable blue economy, I think about the future of humanity. That's where, you know, my grandchildren are going to be relying on the ocean for, for their medicines, for their food, for their renewable energy. And we need to be spending the money now on the infrastructure that will make that all possible. We're not talking about billions here. We're talking about trillions. And that is actually no longer, it sounds like a kind of crazy way to talk because we spent trillions on the COVID pandemic. And the, the COVID pandemic is just one of many things that are going to happen in the 21st century because of climate change. But the sustainable economy is the positive spin because that's what's going to protect us from all these uh, negative things that are going to be happening. So, uh, yeah, spend the trillions, put it in the sustainable blue economy, green our shipping, get into sustainable aquaculture, renewable energy offshore and uh, protect our oceans so that uh, in marine protected areas so that we'll have those genetic resources there in those marine protected areas to give us the medicines that we're going to need in the post-antibiotic age. All in all, you know, move that climate finance needle in the direction of the sustainable blue economy away from the ridiculously low levels it's been at for too long and uh, we'll be looking after ourselves and our grandchildren. UN Ambassador Peter Thompson will return to Peter later in the program. It's all very well to talk about sustainable blue economy, but what does that look like in the real world? And how is it possible to integrate public with private money and make this kind of thinking mainstream? Here to explain are Torsten Thieler from the Global Ocean Trust. Thanks, Dorothy. And Melissa Walsh from the Asian Development Bank. Hi, Dorothy. Traditional tax-based finance will not be sufficient to deal with all the ocean conservation challenges, but the private sector has a whole range of financing tools. So the approach of investing into nature-based solutions and conservation is a real opportunity 
But that opportunity will only exist if we can identify ways of not only achieving an initial investment into the space, but also integrating these projects really into the broader financial values chain, which means the first investor also needs to know that there are revenues, that there are solid investment cases, and that there are exits. So the opportunity to sell the project on, for instance, to larger type investors such as pension funds. So that means actually we can reconcile conservation with profit. Is that possible? I think it is not just possible. I think it's necessary. And it's necessary more almost for the financial folks because they need to reconcile their investments with their long-term impact for the planet. So they want to invest in these types of projects, but they need to understand how conservation projects work. They need support in integrating their financial know-how into this world. But at the same time, the conservation world significantly benefits because, of course, the amount of money that is available in the private sector and in these broader capital markets is so much larger than what can be taken just from taxpayer funds. And so we need to find ways to access these additional sources of capital and we need to bring them in so that we have profit and conservation results. Melissa, how does that resonate with you and the work that you're doing at the Asian Development Bank? You know, I couldn't agree more with what Torsten is saying. And, and we need to get the private sector on board. And there are so many different ways to do that. At ADB, we've been conducting some research. We've been looking across what we call the blue economy. And that is all of these activities that happen that affect the ocean in a positive way and trying to find, well, where are those um, bright spots of hope where we can use private sector capital? Some of our findings are not really surprising. Things like sustainable fisheries, there's room for creating higher price points for fisheries that are sustainable and there's profit to be made there. But also in terms of enforcement for fisheries, there's technologies that can be used that make fisheries more sustainable, but in a more cost-effective way. Again, there's, there's room for profit for those tech companies and things like marine tourism that keeps bubbling up to the top. Then there's the things like marine renewable energy, such as floating solar and offshore wind. Those are clear winners. But the big area of growth is in aquaculture, both for fish and seaweed, and particularly in these areas where you can combine multiple benefits. So if you take an open ocean seaweed project, not only does it clean the water, it also takes carbon out of the atmosphere, it creates jobs for vulnerable communities, many of which have lost their jobs to COVID. And you can even sometimes put floating solar on top. So it's these types of projects that we think have a lot of potential. ADB is doing a lot of work also in the circular economy. And so that's about designing out plastic waste so that you don't have waste to begin with, but the outputs of some industrial process are the inputs to another. There's profit to be made there, but it's also about risk. If you look at the private sector, they're motivated by profit, but they're also motivated by risk. And having a waste stream, well, that's risky. There's liability there when it comes to environmental enforcement. So providing a way for them to understand what those risks are and then to design better and more nature-based solutions, that's better for all of us. 
within the bank? What type of measures or sort of trainings or needs do you have to actually integrate some of this new thinking about nature-based solutions into the activities and also the work with your clients? Yeah, we're we're sort of working at both ends. So on one end, we're working on the small and medium, what we're calling ocean positive projects. But those are really small and it's going to take us some time to get to scale. So at the same time, we're working on the other end and mainstreaming. One way to look at it is nudging. We're nudging projects to be a little bit more blue. So in ports and shipping, sanitation and wastewater, many of the traditional things that a development bank funds, we are looking at those sectors and identifying how those projects can be designed with a perspective of ocean health and resilience from the beginning so that we've got these self-sustaining systems and we're not constantly trying to play catch up to fill in the conservation funding gap. Torsten, maybe back to you. We hear there is a lot of movement in this space, but often we also hear and read that some of these projects are still on the smaller scale at the end of the spectrum when we talk about investment size. So how do we move from the millions into the billions and maybe even the trillions? What do we need to do to further encourage private investment? I think that is the critical question. Obviously, nature is such a key deliverer of services. So we need to find solid ways to show that delivery in the design of a much broader conceptual coastal approach. So if we want to build a new port or a new waste management plant or even more traditional infrastructure, we need to think about how these nature-based solutions can be part and parcel of the overall approach to risk reduction and resilience improvement. And one of the theses that um, I think we should be able to argue is that the overall financial profile of the project improves if we fully integrate these aspects. So as a first step, we can already grow individual projects. We have experience now from the project pipeline of the Blue National Capital Financing Facility and others to show that individual projects work. And so the partners of these projects, the impact funds, the early stage investors who really understand the sector, as well as the developers, can now help us bring this message to a broader range of financial partners. But then the next stage is really to make this a whole functioning universe of the ability of more traditional investors to come in and invest into whole pools, whole structures. We have the whole thing happening in the green finance space. It will very much happen in the blue finance space. But these linkages with more traditional investment is absolutely key. And so the lessons we are learning now about specific nature-based solutions, as long as we apply them diligently and very carefully identify which Parts of these work from an environmental standpoint, from a social standpoint, and from a financial standpoint. And if we support the governance structure around them so that countries have the tools to make this the mainstream, we will see the sector grow very rapidly. Melissa, you issued your first blue bond for ocean investment earlier in September this year. 
Could you please explain briefly how such blue bonds work and how they actually benefit the ocean? Yes, a blue bond. Well, there's many types and they can be complicated, but the idea is rather simple. A bond is just a debt instrument and everyone knows what debt is. It's a mortgage or a car loan. But instead of just having one car loan, it's like having 30 packaged together. And instead of paying for the car or the house, the money's used to pay for projects that are good for the ocean. So what we did at the Asian Development Bank is we set some criteria of which types of projects are good for the ocean. Then we packaged them together and sold them as a blue bond. Things like marine renewable energy, things like sanitation because it reduces marine plastic pollution, also sustainable fisheries projects, sustainable coastal tourism. And we put all of these things together because together they were a large enough and a pretty enough package to attract some new investors. And that's how we can really grow the new market. Great. That that is super interesting. And I think it's those new innovative ways that we have to look more into. So Torsten, can you tell us a little bit about other financial solutions that could work for ocean conservation and restoration? So one aspect is to think beyond just the individual project. So blue infrastructure finance, i.e. integrating these specific projects into a larger solution is one of the key ways you can mitigate the risks of these infrastructure projects because you make them more resilient. But you also allow the individual project to be part of this concept. Another key component is really thinking about where can we put in capital expenditure upfront in exchange for having lower running costs as we go forward. So an investment in restoring, for instance, mangroves means effectively that these mangroves will continue to absorb more carbon every year. So the overall cost is lower because you spend the money up front, but then you can have the project running many years in a profitable way. But in order to make those profits, you need to have a definition of what are these broader benefits, these ecosystem services, and how can we deal with them economically? How can we assess them? And for instance, sell the carbon credits from the mangroves or think about biodiversity credits or think about resilience credits. These are all additional potential sources of revenue, but require that we think about these projects in a more holistic manner. If I'm a project developer who's used to working from a grant basis, so I'm getting a grant every three to five years, what is different suddenly working with private capital versus what we are known from the philanthropic uh, side or from government support? It does change the way you approach what you're doing in the sense that you're winning a new partner. Now, that partner brings some really helpful things to the table. It helps you with your accounting, your management of the project, brings the know-how about how to run your financials. But it's also cost. And that cost is essentially the accountability so that at the end of the time, every year, you produce cash flows which pay back that initial investment. But those cash flows are produced by the project. 
So you're effectively validating your work through the support that you're getting from this additional impact investor. So for a project developer, it slightly changes the way you think about your project, but it also gives the project longevity because it's now based on market type returns. And so this is a very important cooperation opportunity and allows the project developer to engage both with the local community and with the financial investment community. We are entering a new future for ocean financing, and we are entering it quickly. In June 2020, the UN Ocean Conference in Lisbon is expected to achieve big things, and Ambassador Peter Thompson is the host of this event jointly with the government of Kenya and Portugal. What the member states have mandated is that we have a gathering which is very much science-based, but is all about partnerships and solutions and innovations. So if you've got uh, you know, positive ideas and positive projects in that regard that you can bring to Lisbon, you'll be most welcome. We'll put you together with the necessary partners. I would also say that uh, you know, Lisbon, like the New York UN Ocean Conference held in 2017, is expected to be another step up in the implementation of SDG 14, the UN's goal to conserve and sustainably use the ocean's resources. And I have no doubt, because we've begun preparations now with the governments of Portugal and Kenya, that this is going to be so, that uh, we will see in uh, Lisbon the evolution of the, the next phase of the sustainable blue economy. So, as you heard, the ocean is in trouble, but there are solutions to our global problems that involve the conservation and restoration of coastal and marine habitats. And there are ways to leverage more money to pay for these actions. I'm thanking my wonderful guests this week, Ambassador Peter Thompson, Torsten Thiele and Melissa Walsh. We've only started to scratch the surface of ocean financing. There's so much more we need to talk about. Next week, we'll unpack the concept of nature-based solution. We will start discussing what innovation is happening on the ground and what tangible advice project developers can provide other startups, starting with the work around marine protected areas. Tune in and don't forget to subscribe to the Investing for Ocean Impact podcast feed for new episodes every two weeks. I've been Dorothy Hare. See you next time.